Thank you for having us this weekend. Um, Lib and I have loved, uh, especially yesterday, uh, hanging out with you all at the weekend away. Um, it's, it's really good to, to be here. Although I've got to say, yesterday came at some cost. I missed the FA Cup final. Um, <clears throat> although, from what I hear, it wasn't a great game, so uh, maybe not too bad there. And I think probably a little bit more costly, Lib missed the Royal Wedding. Um, and Lib was very keen to, to watch that with, with our girls, especially Jenny. Um, and it's interesting because both of those occasions, the FA Cup final um, and the Royal Wedding, are two, two occasions that are, are full of, of wonder, of, of glory. Uh, two occasions that are full of, of pomp, circumstance, glitter and gold. Very glorious occasions, two occasions actually, and, and certainly if you look at the FA Cup final, uh, an occasion where people are there in the pursuit of glory. Maybe you've watched the FA Cup final yesterday or watched many over previous years. The, the events in some ways are always the same. 22 men lined up on a pitch. Before the game, they are introduced to uh, a royal dignitary, usually the, uh, <coughs> the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William. He's uh, the head of the FA or the notional head of the FA. And they're introduced to him. And as they walk to their positions on the pitch. They are men who have been dreaming of this occasion. They're dreaming of being victors, of walking up the Wembley steps to be presented the trophy. 90,000 people roaring, their teams on, cheering, booing the ref, gasping, crying, screaming, shouting, shouting the names of their favourites. And for one team, for 11 of those men, and, and I guess the subs, at the end of the day, there is victory, celebration, adulation. At the heart of sports, and we see it most clearly in, in finals like the FA Cup final, is the pursuit of glory. And I guess there are elements of that too in a royal wedding. I don't know if you, you're watching it or you've seen some of the pictures uh, since yesterday. Prince Harry marrying Meghan Markle. Thousands of people lining the streets to cheer, to support, to say with their presence and with their voices that this wedding is more significant than, than anything else that could be going on that day. And the pictures, his army uniform, her dress with that five meter long train, all their famous guests, many of whom I think have, have probably never met them. And yet put all that together and you, it, it tells you a story of an occasion of glory. And all those people who came and, and travelled to Windsor to be part of the occasion, to experience, to taste glory, something greater than themselves, the pursuit of glory. And I suspect it gives us a little insight into what we and people generally are like. We function in a pursuit of glory, our own glory, or the glory, or and the glory of other people. As we look at the life of David, and you've started this series, today we reach probably his most famous exploit, his one-on-one -on -one battle with the giant Goliath. It's a, a famous story and 
at its heart is this question about a pursuit of glory. What motivates David? And as we ask the question, what motivates David? We can ask the question of ourselves, well, what motivates us? So imagine the, the picture, the battle lines are drawn, and in a sense, Luke's already told the story. There's a, a valley, the Valley of Elah, just a few miles west of Bethlehem, where we've learned that where David was born and grew up, the town of David. And on one hill are the Philistines. Oh, they're, they're on this. No, I've, I've, which way? This side. Okay. One hill of the, the one hill of the Philistines, the Philistine army. And on the other are Saul, King Saul, and the Israelite army. And the battle lines have been drawn. And every morning, this man, this giant, Goliath, who is three meters tall. That's me and another half of me, okay? Comes out. And shouts to all that can hear, everybody, come, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. That's what he says. I, that's a paraphrase, but that's what he says. He says, I fancy my chances. I can take anybody, anybody who's brave enough to come forward. I am backing myself to beat them. And the author tells us that he defies Israel, defies the army, just says there is no way any one of you can stand up to me. And if we were to admit back, we haven't read the entirety of the chapter. It's a long chapter. We see in verse 11, the response of the Israelites on, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, the king, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And it's into this scenario that our, our friend David enters. So remember, David is one of eight sons of the man called Jesse. And the oldest three are part of this army. But David's the youngest. David's role is described to us in verses 14 and 15. Let's look down again. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's been serving King Saul, playing the music for him. And now he's going back and forth between Saul and the army and, and his father Jesse, and he's tending the sheep. And we find him brought on this occasion, sent by his father to be an errand boy. Take some supplies to your brothers and take some cheese to their commanders. David is not a warrior here. He's not a man that we're expecting to play a big part in this war, in this battle. He's little... He's, to be frank, dismissible. He's a footnote. And yet we read, when he gets to the camp, he drops his deliveries at the entrance and he runs to the front line to see his brothers. And as he's running along, as he gets to the front line, he hears the giant Goliath and he hears the call. He gets an earful of the defiance of Goliath that is being spat at the soldiers of Israel. And the response of the soldiers is contrasted by the author of 1 Samuel to the response of David. So look down at verse 25, and we'll read it again. <coughs> Sorry, verse 24. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him 
in great fear. They're running backwards. And then verse 25, now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give him great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? As all the troops are running backwards from Goliath, David stands there and says, what happens if I step forwards? And it's put right next to each other to make us go, well, they're going opposite directions. How is the delivery boy, the errand boy, thinking about going forwards to meet Goliath? It's fleeing versus fighting. But remember, we're thinking particularly about the motive, the motive of glory. As we step into this situation, as we see David stepping forwards, as the men run backwards, what is motivating David? What's going on on the inside, in his heart? What will be done for the man, is the question. And surely, initially, we would be right to assume he is after his own glory. He's sniffing recognition. He can see the princess on his arm. He can hear the crowd singing his name. He can almost touch the gold, the wealth. And our question is, David, where's your heart? Because that's what it looks like. It looks as though your heart is about you. And, well, let's listen to David's big brother, his eldest brother, Eliab. Listen to how Eliab diagnoses David's heart in verse 28. And David, Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? You must hear it, can't you? Know your place, little brother. Know your place. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Eliab says to us, here's David's heart. You're a glory hunter, David. And more than that, you're a dreamer. Here you are, little boy, thinking of all the riches and really, you've just come down to watch. You're talking the big talk. But you've just come down to watch. Go back to your sheep, David. And maybe we'd be tempted to take Eliab's description, how he calls David out here, and say, yeah, this is what's going on in David. But we should notice how different Eliab's description of David's heart is from God's description of David's heart. Just flick back a page in your Bible. 1 Samuel 16. A couple of weeks ago, Ian taught on, on Samuel calling David at God's behest. And we get this scene where Daniel go, uh, sorry, Daniel, Samuel goes to Bethlehem. And David says, I'm going to ask you to appoint a new king. It's from Jesse's family. It's one of Jesse's boys. 
And the, the lineup comes out. And Samuel sees Eliab and sees how tall and impressive he is and thinks, surely this is God's man. But God says to Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Eliab and brother number two and three and four and five and six and seven all pass before Samuel. And God says, not the man, not the man. But 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, God says, rise and anoint him as he looks on David this is the one this is the one whose heart I have looked at and this is the one that I'm calling God's description of David's heart is significantly different from what Eliab sees in his brother and as we go forward let's back God not Eliab so maybe Maybe David's motivation of glory is not his own. But as we question David's heart, we need to question our hearts. Whose glory am I motivated by? If we could cut into every dream, every fantasy, every hope of our own hearts if we could trace back the reasons for every action and every word that we do and say, if we could plan a, a, one of those root and branch maps for our own internal workings, what would be the root? Would it be the glory of self? How many of, how much of what we do, how many of our actions are driven by what works out best for me? What puts me in the best position? What will get other people to see how great I am? What will lead to me being wealthy and acclaimed? I wonder how many roots, how many motives would have the word God's glory inscribed on them. How much of what we do is done for God. Whose glory are we seeking? We've got to be careful we don't question David and, and leave ourselves untouched. Whose glory is David seeking? Let's think secondly about the, the source of glory. Listen again to his, his question in verse 26, back in chapter 17. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The armies of the living God. He sees Goliath's actions and his defiance, not primarily as an offense against the people, but primarily he sees it as an offence against God. Goliath's only talked about people. He's come out, come out against the army, against Israel. He's defied Israel. But David hears his words and says, it's not Israel that he's going after. It's God. 
And so in his question we hear it's the armies of the living God. Two things for us to, to see here about David. Firstly, his God is a living God. And then secondly, his God is a God whose association with his people is so strong that he can immediately hear Goliath talking about God's people and recognize that he's actually going against God himself. How does God know? How does David know that God is a living God? Here's some evidence for us. Again, we jump back to chapter 16, verse 1. God chose David. David had been quietly living his life in Bethlehem, getting on with his chores and his tasks, looking after the sheep. And then suddenly, this God reaches down from the heavens into history and totally alters David's life forever. He takes this shepherd boy and says, one day you will be king. This God knows David. He sees him. He chooses him. And off the back of that, in this situation, David said, I know that God lives. I know that he's active. I know that he's there. And we're told at the end of that section, in verse 13, that David becomes indwelt. The Spirit of God lives in David. There's been an inward change in David, to David. His desires are being changed. His loves, his power is strengthened. He is not who he was before that event took place where the great prophet Samuel rocked up at his hometown and saw all of his brothers and said, no, 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 where's David? A significant event, but the Bible tells us that more than that, the Spirit, God himself, empowers and, and lives in David. And David must have known and seen the change. In fact, third thing to, for us to notice, he's seen the, the fruit of that. He's seen the fruit of God's work in and through him. So just look, 1623, there's a, a little story, I think Rob's going to come back to this next week, where David gets called up to serve the king, not as a soldier, not as a, a warrior, but as a musician. God's called him, God's equipped him, and suddenly now he's seeing fruit because he's there playing music for the king and he's seeing God use that to, to calm the king, to work in the spiritual battle going on, on around King Saul. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And the writer makes it sound as though this happens quite a lot and David has seen the fruit of God working through him to serve the king of his people David says God is not dead God is not absent God is living he's not the God of people who say that they believe in a God but practically speaking they've put that God on the shelf and they tick the religious, uh, the religious box in the census, but day to day, week to week, it makes no practical difference. There's no relationship there. He says, it's, that's not my God. 
He's not an ornament that sits on the shelf as a piece of decoration. God is a living God. This army, these Israelite army, are the army of the living God. And this God has so aligned himself with his people that an offense against them is an offense against him. They belong to him. They are chosen by him. They bear his name. They are his handiwork. They are kept by him. They are people that he has saved. He is rescued from slavery and implanted in the land. A God that he, a people that God calls his own. A chosen, a chosen people, a nation of priests. They belong to God. And so to defy Israel's army is to defy Israel's God. And it is David who brings out this profound truth, who sees it for what it is. This is not just typical warfare, but when Goliath steps out morning by morning and shouts to the soldiers, he is coming up and setting himself up against God and saying, God, your God is not all that. You can't beat me. Your God can't beat me. It's not Israel's reputation on the line. It is God's. Goliath might in all truth be able to look at this Israelite army and feel absolute assurance that nobody can touch him. But for him to say that God cannot touch him, well, David won't stand for that. He can't let that slide. Because, quite simply, David is a man who's motivated by God's glory. What is, what is glory? Well, let's work with this simple definition. Glory is the acknowledgement of greatness. It is the representation of what is truly there. It's like the beams of light streaming out from the sun that reveal its power and its strength and its warmth and its, its very lightness. That is glory. And David says every time that Goliath stands there and shouts, he's saying that God is not God and God is not glorious. The source of glory, what glory is for David, is that there is a living God who created everything and sustains all things. The great God, who is love, who is wisdom, who is truth, who is power. The God who is self-existent and self-sustaining. The God who is infinite, infinite and perfect. The God whose strength and love and knowledge are unbounded and everlasting. To say or to imply anything less is to try and steal or reduce the glory of God. And it is an utterly futile task. It's like trying to block out the sun. And yet, Goliath, and let's be blunt, we, 
are often involved in the task of seeking to, seeking to steal the very glory of God. And that's what causes David to step forward. Verse 32, David said to, uh, sorry, <clears throat> 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And this is where we see, thirdly, the, the nature of God's glory. David versus Goliath. Imagine the, uh, if you're a sports fan or a boxing fan, before a big fight or a big game, what we get now is more airtime for the pre-game than we do for the actual game itself. There are stats and more stats, and here, here's the history of this fighter, and here's the history of this fighter, and and in a sense, the author here gives us a little bit of that. He lines up the two side by side, David versus Goliath. Listen to Goliath's description in verses 4 to 7. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Oh, the stats are impressive. This man is a champion. He's huge. And this man, his armor... David couldn't even begin to lift up his armor, let alone fight him. Contrasting, we get the David's stats. Look at verse 14. David was the youngest. David wasn't even the biggest in his family. He was the youngest, the puniest, the least impressive of all his brothers, let alone the rest of Israel. Look at verse 32. And verse 33, as David says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. The king, Saul, looks on David and, and he laughs. There's no way. There is no way. And we see... Eventually, David convinces Saul, I'm going. So Saul tries to dress him, verse 38, in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on a sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he's going to walk in without armor. Instead, verse 40, he took off his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's back, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. And when he gets there, Goliath looks at him and laughs. Verse 42, he looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And so the stats are up on the screen. 
And it just looks, it just looks overwhelming. The bookies have stopped taking odds, stopped taking bets because there's no, there's only one winner here. And I wonder if we were to honestly ask the question of ourselves, wouldn't we expect God to have picked Goliath as his champion? Wouldn't we? If you're one of these to go out and fight for you, wouldn't you pick Goliath? Okay, maybe you've been brought up in church, maybe you know the story and you think, no, I'd pick David because he wins. But actually in every other area of life, we, we go for the impressive, don't we? We want the stronger person. And shouldn't God? Shouldn't God go for the, the more impressive, the more striking, somebody who is more befitting of God's own greatness? Who's God more like, David or Goliath? Well, surely Goliath. God's the biggest. God's the strongest. God always wins. But the nature of glory, the nature of God's glory is that it doesn't work like that. Because human greatness distorts God's greatness. The more we see of a human, the less we see of God. God chooses David, a man after his own heart. And because he chooses David, we see less of David and more of God. This is God's modus operandi. This is how God works. He uses the weak things of the world. He uses little David so that people will see how great he is. And David knows that. Look down at David's response to Goliath in verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. See, David is little and unimpressive and unfancied. But when David wins, God will be glorified. People will say, there's no way David can do that on his own. Who's helping him? And the answer is God. People, the world will see. Sorry, the, the world will see. That's David's words, isn't it? The world will see. The world will know that there is a God in Israel. And it's fascinating because in our world, we could go out on the streets and we could say, David and Goliath, who wins? And even a whole host of people who have never darkened the doors of a church would say, David. David wins. We still use the language, don't we? 
to describe situations where somebody, something or somebody small comes up against something or somebody big. And the odds of success are overwhelming for the big man. It happens all the time in sports. You've only got to get to turn on the FA Cup in the early rounds and the non-league team are facing the premiership team and it'll be described inevitably as David versus Goliath. Or we see it in business where there's some small local store and then there's the big supermarket and there's a dispute or something and the papers will be, it's David versus Goliath. It would not be glorious for Goliath to beat David. It would just be expected. It is glorious when David beats Goliath. And it's glorious to the one who stands behind David, the one for whom, for whose glory David fights. And what's this is that how God works is that God does not impose his own greatness. The God of the universe, the God who makes all things, the God who controls all things, does not impose his greatness upon his enemies. He reveals him. He shows him so that his greatness himself will be loved and worshipped and admired. God could step in at any point and end every battle. But he works in a way which shows his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his love. So that people will delight in him. It's not just about God's bigness, it's about God's beauty. And so he chooses to use the small, the insignificant, the weak, so that he will show his greatness, his power, his love. And this is where we most clearly see the line from David to Jesus. Jesus is the man who fully lives for the glory of God. As we read this story, David is in, he started so well. But David will fail, spectacularly fail. But Jesus didn't. If you were to cut open the heart of Jesus, the root of every action, the root of every motive, the root of every word would be for the glory of God. Jesus takes on humanity with all of its limitations, but never succumbs to the, the temptation for personal human glory that we all succumb to. He does the will of his Father always. And we see it in his life. We see the temptations are there for, for human glory. The crowds come after they see his miracles and they, they seek to make him king. By force. And Jesus sidles away. We see it as his disciples recognize who he is. We see in Mark 8 where Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to die. And Peter says, no, don't go that way, Jesus. You're the king. And in that moment, there's a temptation for Jesus to go, yeah, I, can't, I, I could take the easy route. I am the king. And yet he rejects it. He tells Peter to, 
says, Peter, you are being controlled by Satan in what you're saying here. Offering me this easy option, he steps back from that human temptation for human glory. He says, no, God's glory, God's way. We see it as Jesus is tempted by the devil in the desert. And Satan offers him it all. The worship of all the people in all the worlds. Jesus, you can have it all if, if you'll just bow down to me. And in that moment, the, Jesus, the man, isn't that an easy option? You can have the worship of all the worlds. Because Jesus, you are the king. Just bow before Satan. And Jesus says, no. No. I will go God's way. I will do it his way according to his plan. I will glorify God. God is glorified through Jesus in every way, at every step. And ultimately we see that in the cross. We see it as Jesus bears the sin of the people, absorbs the wrath of God, protecting a people who utterly deserve it. Us. In every step, says, for the glory of God, I will take this upon myself before Jesus is lifted up in heaven and exalted and worshipped and praised. He's lifted up on the earth on a Roman cross and he is mocked and he is scorned to the glory of God. And the modus operandi, the nature of God's glory is that it's small and unimpressive. And the cross, as glorious as it is to us believers, we're told in 1 Corinthians, is a message of foolishness to those who are perishing. It looks like weakness. It's not strong. Jesus doesn't arrive in this world and say, I'm the king, I'm great, I'm glorious, bow down before me. He comes as a servant. He goes to the cross. My message is foolishness. And the messengers are weak. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. We have this treasure, this, this knowledge of the glory of God, of Christ and all that he has done. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Describing people. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God's and not us. To live for the glory of God is not to live big, impressive lives. It's to live in weakness. Because then when God works and he takes weak, pathetic, broken, failing, sinful people and he does glorious things, the only possible response for people watching on will be, there must be a God who's working in them because, because they are not glorious. We are not glorious. 
we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. And so, as we gather here on a, a Sunday afternoon, and we come bearing our weakness, I want to say, take heart. Because this is how God brings glory to himself. He chooses weak people, failing people. And he says, I will use you to show my own glory. The problem is, is that often we still want to be glorified. We still want the glory for ourselves. Listen, we can't be the objects of glory. Maybe for a little bit. But that is a weight that we cannot bear. We'd be like inflatable dinghies trying to transport a, a cargo hold full of gold across the ocean. We might just about make it out the harbour. But that boat is sinking. We can't hold the weight of glory. And yet we keep trying. It's not what we're made for. We cannot bear it. We were made to glorify God, to show his greatness, to be a witness to all that he has and is and will do. And for us to try and take the place of God is utterly offensive to him. The glory due his name cannot and will not be shared with another. That's what God says in Isaiah 42. You want to just turn with me to Isaiah 42? It's page 728. In the run-up to Easter, you were looking at one of the servant songs of Isaiah. These four songs where... God points to the, the servant that he'll send. And here's another one. Look at verse 8. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. It's a great statement where God says, I don't share glory. There's nothing. There's nobody who's ever been made or ever will live that can rightly take on this mantle of glory that is mine and mine alone. And yet, God says that in the context of someone who will come and will be glorious. Let me read verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what the God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, 
who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Those are words of glory. This servant will come and he will be glorious. How can it be then that God says, I will not share my glory with another? Because the man who comes will be both man and God. It is Jesus. And God can so, so fully righteously say, I won't share my glory with another. But I will come. I will come and take on humanity. And, and this is a description of Jesus. He and he alone stands amongst humanity as someone who is glorious and who can be gloried in and who we are to bring glory to because he is both man and God. Let me finish up. You see two points of application there on the, uh, the sermon outline. Glory in the vanguard. Listen, for us, that desire that we have for glory is properly fulfilled. Not when we try and take God's glory in ourselves, but where in Christ, if we trust in him, we get to go and be with him and share in his glory. That's what happens here in 1 Samuel 17. This army this Israelite army who have been quivering and shaking in their boots, who are utterly inglorious, who don't even recognise that when Goliath stands up against them, he's defying God. They're too busy sat wallowing in their own cowardice. But when God's man, God's king, God's anointed one steps forward and defeats the enemy, well, they are not then shamed they are not kicked out. They get to join in. So look down at verse 52. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sherim road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Philistines returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. This is what it looks like to share in the glory not to be the one who is glorious because we failed but to follow in his vanguard to be as David goes forward and David defeats the enemy then, and then the Israelite army gets to follow on and in his kindness God includes his people in the blessings of Christ and the glory of Christ isn't that wonderful? That God would in some way allow us to, to share in the glory of God. I just think that's so kind of God. That we would share in his victory. And we do that as we go out and not declare ourselves and our own greatness. We do that as we go out and say, look what God has done for us in Christ. That's what evangelism is. It's declaring the victory that has already been won by God's King. 
And there's something glorious in sharing that good news, sharing the gospel. And so, for us, we follow on after Christ. And secondly, to glory in the ordinary. We're not all kings in waiting as David was. Our roles, our roles are not all up front, public and witnessed by others. But we can all work for the glory of God. We can all be motivated by that. As Ian reminded us yesterday, for those that were on the, the away day, in fact, here's a quote from Ian, I wrote it down. When we work, we reflect God's glory. In your schoolwork, in your caring for children or parents maybe, in your paid work, in your conversations, you, we can glorify God. We can acknowledge his greatness, his bigness, his beauty by saying we will do things for him so that people will know how great and wonderful he is. We take seriously what he has taught us. We can glorify God through obedience. And we can live in this world of brokenness with hope, with joy. And we can live in this world believing the promises that this is not it. That's part of how we glorify God, by not making this world all and everything. By saying this world is, is just a passing stage for the world to come. And when we live in accordance with that truth, so that he might be known and that he might be seen, and we do it all in his way. Obedience in its, at its heart is saying, God is God. And I am not. And he knows best. And so I will walk the way that he calls me to walk. David points us to Jesus. A life fully lived that God's bigness and beauty may be known. One who defeats the enemy and rescues him for himself a people. David shows us what life as a spirit-filled, God-chosen person looks like. A heart filled with passion and zeal for the name of God that causes him, causes us to live by faith, to take risks and ultimately point people to how great our God is.